spoke for, you know, in, in depth over the last week or two, and we thought this was a good time to, to, to talk about this. Um, about four or five years ago, this isn't bad, so nobody get nervous about it anyway. Um, this is actually really exciting, at least I think it is. So about, about four or five years ago, uh, Pastor Gary wanted to go to General Conference, and he ended up going, but because of uh, situations beyond their control, Sister Jackie and the kids could not go with him, and he usually tries to take his family along with events like that. So uh, as a last resort, he invited me to go with him. And <laughs> so and we went, and we had a real good time. But we're sitting in the airport. It was early on the morning that we were supposed to leave, and I'm about half asleep and half awake. And, uh, and he's, he's there, and we decided to eat at Burger King because that's always a good place to go to wake you up and pay way too much at the airport nonetheless. So we're sitting at Burger King, and he's, he's telling me about how he feels bad because his wife can't go. And, and, you know, honestly, I don't really feel like I was in a very spiritual frame of mind that early in the morning. Uh, but God did speak to me, and the Holy Ghost came on me just like that. And this, this is the word that God gave me that I gave to Pastor Gary. That God is, by the way, this was four or five years ago before, I, don't, I think that was even before we had rededicated or re, remodeled our, our building. So we weren't in any kind of a building program. We were only about 60, 70 people strong at that point. And this is what God told me, and I gave it to Pastor Gary. And I said, God is going to use our church's story for how things happened and the miracle that occurred to help other churches and build up his kingdom. And that was the word that God gave me. And when I gave him that word, there was an immediate witness of the Spirit there, as he himself noted. And now it's, you know, four or five years later, and we're, seem, we're, we're faced with a seemingly impossible situation with the building. But God, show me a mountain God can't move. Show me a water he can't park. Nothing is impossible for God. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. But I know that when he does, we're going to be like Miriam. We're going to take the timbrel and we're going to dance all over the place. And there's going to be rejoicing. God hasn't failed this yet. And so God is in the process of moving refuge to a new level. And, you know, I know that we're, you know, on a good Sunday, we'll have 150 people. We're kind of all crammed in here in this building. And, you know, the, big, the good thing about a building is, is you can't avoid people that you don't like. A small building, big church, small buildings, and that's just the way it goes. Um, so so that's, that's a positive because it's like God is making you, hopefully everybody likes each other, but God is in the process of moving us to a new level. And that means that it's going to take some sacrifices from us. By the way, this is not about money either, so don't get nervous. We will all be a huge part of what God is going to do. Not only that, but God is going to take the model and how things happened in, in Liberty and Refuge, and he is going to use it as a model and as a testimony to help churches all over the North America and all over the world. And, and I, I can tell you God's not doing that with every church, but he chose refuge for whatever his divine purposes are, and I, I genuinely mean that God is, God is setting us up for, to be a major part of what God is going to do in, in the last days. Now, one of the challenges are that, that as a pastor of a small church, he can, and even Sister Jackie, and by small I mean 75 or, low or lower, he, he and she can touch everybody in the church. 
And so as we grow, it becomes more difficult to do that, even though he loves everybody and even though he has a deep heart of compassion for everybody, it's just not possible. And so Pastor Gary and Sister Jackie, especially on Sundays and Wednesdays, like here's a good example. Last Sunday, there were several guests, but Pastor Gary couldn't get to all of them because he had people that, he, that were talking to him and he had people that were coming to him with maybe complaints or maybe issues, challenges, I need prayer. And all those things are valid. And he wants you to know that he loves you and that he is always available. However, on Sundays and Wednesdays, he needs to be free to connect with the guests. And, and that, is, that is all part of what God is, God is going to do. And this is true of, of any church that grows beyond 75 or 80. You just reach kind of a tipping point where it becomes difficult for the pastor to touch everybody in any one given service. So he has, and not just him, but she also, you know, they both have to be free to go to, to guests, first-time guests, and those that are weak in the Lord, and, and really, really connect with them. You know, and, and, and if, if you need him, and if, if God doesn't take care of whatever your ailment is at the altar, because I know, if, speaking for me, and by the way, I'm not just telling you this, I'm telling me this too, okay, because I have, I don't know if everybody's done it, but I know I've, I'm just as guilty as anybody else, but, you know, we have to kind of untie his hands and allow him to be free on Sundays and Wednesdays to, to do the work that God has called him to do. And again, I want to reiterate that he, he deeply loves the church, so much that he's built his whole life around this church. I mean, I told him, you know, if, if you ever leave, we're all coming with you. <laughs> all 150 of us, we're all going to pack our bags and go. But no, he's, he's not leaving. He's bought a house here. His family's here. He's going to be here until he retires, as far as we know. And he'll be here every Sunday and Wednesday going forward. But again, he just needs to be free to talk to guests. So, amen. I hope I haven't offended anybody, but we love you. Also, I want to know if you have an issue and you can't reach Pastor Gary, Pastor Chad's available. So you can, you can all come to him. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I did not volunteer for this. <laughs> I'm available as well um, in any of the ministers in our church. You know, we got some ladies in the church that can flat out call down the fire from heaven. I mean, I mean it. If you need prayer, I mean, you ask Sister Waller and Sister Morgan and Diana Snyder and, and Rita Huey, you ask them to gather around you and pray for you. And if God doesn't answer their prayers, I don't know, you need to repent or something because <laughs> it's, it's sin that's getting in the way. Um, but really, we, we have some amazing people in this church, and we are all here to help you. There's small groups that are available. Pastor Gary is always available 24-7, except for when before and after service and on Wednesdays. Okay, I hope you still love me. I love you, too. That was the first message. Rock Church can be dismissed. I love that sound. That means they're excited about Rock Church. <laughs> Amen. God is good, isn't he? Amen. I want to I speak for a little bit today uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and I want to read verses 9 through 12. From Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and begin reading in verse number 9, says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? 
And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I want to just probably teach for a little bit this morning on this title, The Danger of Walking Alone. The Danger of Walking Alone. So walking alone. I know that sometimes it's good to take a walk alone. And sometimes, you know, especially if you're more introvert, even extroverts need some alone time because, you know, none of us are 100% extrovert 100% of the time. Uh, But, you know, a good walk alone is sometimes a really good thing. It clears your mind. Um, But but on a larger scale in your life, man and and woman was never meant to be alone. Um, From Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says this, And the Lord God said, It is not good. That man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. I've said it before. I'll say it every time I read this verse. I don't know what Adam was doing when he said it's not good that Adam's by himself. But thank God he gave us the woman to talk some sense into us many times. If you're smart, man, you'll listen to your wife because she's, she's a lot wiser than you are in a lot of ways. <laughs> After creation, God said it is good. He, in fact, he said that many times in the evening and the morning were the first day, and God saw that it was good. He looked out over all his creation, everything that he had done, and he said it is good. But the first thing God calls not good in Scripture is Adam being all by himself. Now, being by yourself conjures up memories of things like the Lone Ranger. Anybody remember that? And his sidekick, Tonto. The Lone Ranger, it wasn't really. Tonto helped the Lone Ranger get out of more things. He wasn't really the Lone Ranger. He was the Lone Ranger plus Tano, as, as they call it. But th- that was what I remember as a little kid watching that. And we remember, you know, uh, you know, guys on the big screen like John Wayne and other tough guys on the big screen. But it's an image that some seem to seek. And the image is, I don't need anybody. I'm fine being all by myself, or as one songwriter said, I walk alone. And some people are just loners. They have walls up, high walls around their hearts that few can penetrate. And walls are often designed to protect us and to keep things out. But when you build a wall around you, you make yourself a prisoner. Because you're keeping everything, and many times including healing from God, you're keeping that out. So we pride ourselves sometimes in saying, well, I've built walls around me. I don't get close to anybody because, bless God, I walk alone. But you're not meant to be alone. You know, you can even feel alone in a large group or gathering. You ever, you ever been there? You're surrounded by people, but you feel all by yourself. You feel like you're not connecting with anybody. And, you know, like if you're in a large group and you feel like you're alone and you're not connecting with anybody anymore, social media, for example, has not done us any favors either. Again, I'm not knocking Facebook or Twitter or whatever else they got out there, but it's made us all far more isolated than we should be at times. As people look to technology to socialize and not seek out physical connections with real people any longer. And when I grew up, they didn't have social media. When I grew up, they didn't have cell phones. When I, when I was dating Tanya, we had to pay 69 cents a minute. And I remember on a payphone, you know, going to the payphone with $10 a quarters. I'd put $4 in and hope nobody came behind me and honked their horn and needed the, some of y'all don't know what a payphone is. 
<laughs> I'm probably showing my age now. Quarters. And they didn't give you any warning. When your time was up, that operator would come on and say, put more coins in or you're done. <laughs> and you either put more coins in or you were done. And so you had to kind of guesstimate how much time you had. So I would go and get $10 a quarter, go to the pay phone, because that was cheaper, actually, than paying a big phone bill. Although we did pay a big phone bill at times. So y'all don't know, know the pain of things like that. Now you can just text, you can FaceTime. There's a million ways that you can connect to somebody. And, and those are all good things. I think that in many ways, technology has made our lives easier. But it hasn't necessarily made it better in every aspect. Okay? So... Being by yourself is sometimes healthy, but isolation never is. There is physical isolation. That is people who live off the grid and spend 99% of their times all by themselves. There's a whole YouTube sensation now on, on, on uh, Generation Zers and not knocking the Generation Z folks, just saying, you know, they pack their bags and they move into a van and they're kind of homeless. <laughs> And, and they just live in their van, and, and they tour the country, and it's not that they don't have jobs. They have jobs. Most of them have jobs, or they've saved up money, and, you know, that's fine to do that, you know, to have dreams like that. And then there's a whole nother, you know, YouTube sensation on people who live off the grid. And, you know, they go on, and they pride themselves in not paying the van, not paying no electric bill, not paying the light bill. I'm going to build my own uh, I'm going to build my own well, and I'm just kind of do life on my own. It sounds good. Until you need somebody. And then what are you going to do? Because you're isolated and you're out there in the middle of nowhere. So isolation is never a positive thing. But there is spiritual isolation also. And that is far more dangerous than physical isolation ever could be. Here are some symptoms of spiritual isolation. Number one, you make life-changing decisions all by yourself without the aid, direction, and input of other godly people in your life. Number two, you are lonely, but you fear intimacy. Number three, you lack the ability to fully trust because of the pain of some past event that has happened in your life, and as a result, you've built walls around yourself that nobody can penetrate. There's also being afraid of coming to a physical building to be in church because You just worship online. There is no spiritual leader in your life whom you've given authority to speak into you and give you direction and whom you hold yourself accountable to and are submitted to in your life. And lastly, the uh, the last symptom, and certainly not, not the least, you seem to be doing well to everybody around you, but you are harboring a secret battle that you cannot seem to win. And that nobody knows about. Let me tell you today, I'm not here to judge you. I am here to help you. And to give you direction. Because God never intended for you to walk by yourself. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1 from the New American Standard Bible. I think Brother Stiggers would love this because I'm reading from his favorite version of the Bible. He got me turned on to the NASB, and I actually do like it. This is from the NASB. One who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Read that again. One who separates himself 
seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. When any of us are weak or need help winning a battle of any kind, God has set up a system in the church to assist and to aid and to heal and to recover and to fully deliver you from that hour of temptation or from whatever it is you've got your feet stuck into. But many times when we walk alone, we are quarreling against the wisdom of God because he hasn't designed us to walk alone. When you isolate yourself, you allow the enemy to drag you away from the resources that God put into place to deliver you. You allow yourself to be pulled away from the voice or voices that would speak into your life, that would keep you from making that bad decision or keep you from moving across the country because that pastor or that mentor in your life has a check in his or her spirit and they're not feeling that that's a good direction from you. But you're walking all alone. You've isolated yourself because you're not really fully submitted to anybody and, and you're kind of the captain of your own vessel. You're walking alone. Look at Romans chapter 15 and verse 1 with me. This is from the King James we then ought to, that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Now God's system is the strong bearing what Paul called the infirmities of the weak. This word infirmities is also used in Acts chapter 14 verse 8 where it's translated as impotent. And here's that verse from Acts 14. And there sat a man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who never had walked. And so when, when the Apostle Paul referenced the infirmities of the weak, he was referencing things that hinder our ability to walk as Christ has fully called us to walk in. That is, someone uh, with an infirmity cannot walk. He's weak in his spiritual legs and feet, spiritually weak and unable to do the things that God has called him or her to do because they keep stumbling in this one area of their life. Whatever it is, you know, they keep running into this battle and it keeps, you know, making them fall on their faces. And it's a private battle because they're afraid of telling anybody they're embarrassed or they're ashamed, whatever, whatever the case may be, or they're afraid of the ramifications, whatever it is. They have isolated themselves, and as a result, they are lame in their spiritual legs and feet, and they cannot get up and walk by themselves. But Acts 14 says, and there sat a man. He was all by himself, apparently. Nobody there to help or assist him. Certainly nobody who probably even could help him. But when he got connected to the Apostle Paul, he was made whole, never to be lame again. And let me tell you, so, all, so long as you sit all alone, so long as he sat all alone, he remained lame. But he got connected to faith through a man of God. And you see, God has set up a system of accountability in the church to ensure that nobody ever walks alone. This is that accountability system from Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, I'm sure all of our Bible Christians can quote this by heart. I will not put you on the spot today. But, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the what? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work 
of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the fivefold ministry. That's its job. It's for the perfecting of the saints. The word perfecting there just means to bring into a place of spiritual maturity. If you're at home and you're, and you're all by yourself and you never come directly into the house of God and you haven't really submitted yourself to a pastor, then you're not getting the, the fivefold ministry. And as a result, you're not getting matured and perfected like you need to be. Because that's how God set it up. He never meant for us to be all by ourselves. He never meant for us to carry our struggles all alone. He never meant for any of that. He meant that when we mess up and when we get our feet stuck in the mud, that we would go to a man or a woman of God and say, hey, I need help. I need deliverance through this. Would you pray? And suddenly that which is lame is healed. And that's how God set it up. But he said it's for the perfecting of the saints. So by default, that means we're not all perfect yet. That may shock you to know that I'm not perfect. My wife is laughing really loud. I am not perfect. And I'm pretty sure you feel the same about yourself. You are not perfect either. We all need perfecting. But we often all live our lives like you know, some like how some people clean their house when they have guests that are coming over. I got guests coming over tonight, so you know I'm just gonna pick it all up, put it in the cover, and shove it in the closet. Vacuuming up real good. House clean in seven minutes and forty-two seconds. Take some of that Lysol stuff that smells good with lemony whatever in it and spray it all over the house. Oh, people think you're so clean. And they'll come in, they'll sit down, they'll come, oh, what a nice house you had. And you're thinking, yeah, you just don't know what's in the closet. Or, or wherever else you shove it, in your bedroom. Or some abandoned room. But that's how some people live their lives. People who hide their struggles usually do so because they think they're the only ones who is struggling or has struggled. When the truth of the matter is, most of us in this room today have a junk closet in our house. Or at least a junk drawer. How many have a junk drawer? How many have a junk closet? I mean, just have junk. <laughs> no I'm kidding. We all have that. And, you know, like there's a good chance if I can't find something, it's, if it's small enough to fit in our junk drawer, it's, it's going to be there. <laughs> Or, you know, we don't really have a, we live in a smaller house, so we don't have the, the we, don't, we don't really have the freedom to have a junk room. <laughs> but we do have a junk drawer. But some people live their lives like that. They've got junk in their closet, and nobody knows about it. And they're afraid to show, to open up and tell anybody because they think they're the only ones that has ever struggled with that. And let me tell you, remind you, your struggles may not be my struggles, but we all have struggles. 
The enemy will take you out and he'll pull you away from the church and he'll pull you away from people who can help you, who can pray with you, who can believe God with you in moments of weakness. And he will say, you're the only ones. You don't want to tell anybody because you're going to be the gossip of the church and, and people are going to look down at you. People won't look at you the same way again. I am here to tell you that that is a lie from hell. It's not true. Because there are people who will love you, who will pray for you, who will pray with you until God delivers you. Amen. Look with me to the book of John chapter 6. In verse 70, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Let me remind you that Judas also walked alone. He was physically with the Lord Jesus himself and all the other disciples. Every miracle that you read about in the Gospels, Judas was right there to witness it. He saw the physical body of Jesus Christ. He slept uh, beside him, beside that campfire. He saw the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that Jesus did. He heard all of the parables and all of the teachings of Jesus Christ. He was handpicked by the Lord himself to do a great work, and yet he walked alone. Judas had a nagging issue that he could never fully deliver himself from, and we get a hint of what it was in John chapter 12, the very chapter before he went out into the night and betrayed the Lord, Says, then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This was after uh, Mary poured that ointment on his feet, washed his feet with her hair. And then John said of him, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Let me remind you that at the time of this writing, none of the disciples had any knowledge that Judas was, had these things in his heart. Because the book of John was written many years after these events happened. So this knowledge came after Judas had betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver. None of the disciples knew Judas had this issue with money. Now we know that because of this verse in John chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Verily I say unto you, one of you will betray me. Now if they all knew that Judas had this problem, and he was a thief, and he was a devil, as Jesus called him earlier in John chapter 6, they all would have known who it was. Oh, it's going to be Judas. We know, his, we know what's in his heart. None of them knew it because here's what they said in verse 25. He then lying on Jesus' breast, this is John saying to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, he it is to whom I will give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto Judas. Satan did not enter into the heart of Judas Iscariot until his, Judas's heart was fully open. It was in this moment of severe an extended time of spiritual isolation that Satan was fully able to enact his plan through the open door in the heart and mind of Judas Iscariot, one of the elite chosen 12. 
None of the other 11 knew Judas's private struggle. He walked alone. But why? Why did Judas feel like he had to be all alone by himself in this struggle? Why didn't Judas, in a single moment of complete honesty and openness, look around at one of the, one of the other 11 disciples as maybe they, you know, they kind of sat there by the campfire one day and they're all warming their hands and maybe Judas was, you know, he looked around, he looked over at Thomas and he's thinking, who, who can I tell, who can I, who can I ask to help me this with? He looked over at Thomas. Thomas was always that one that was honest and spoke his mind. Could have went to him. You know, he maybe he thought, well, maybe I can go to John. John was that disciple known as the beloved disciple. He was kind. He was gracious. He was sweet. He, 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 surely he could have went to John. Maybe he could have went to Peter or, or maybe Andrew or maybe one of the, you know, the other disciples. He could have went to anybody. But instead, he kept his secret and his secret battle all to himself. And, and, and he struggled with it privately. He kept saying, I can get victory over it. I just got to pray more. I just got to do more. I just got to do more things. And let me tell you that prayer and the word of God is always the answer. But sometimes the, that, that there is an answer in addition to that. And that is I need to tell somebody my struggles because I need help. Don't walk alone. Maybe he could have went to Jesus. You think, what do you think Jesus would have done? If Judas would have came to Jesus... And said, Jesus, I don't think I'm the best guy to keep the money back. <laughs> he was closest in his ministry to the thing that was his greatest source of temptation. And for whatever reason, maybe he put himself in that position. Maybe he politicked for it. You know, maybe, I don't know. There's theological questions beyond my comprehension that I cannot understand and, 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 and even begin to, to explain. But Judas walked alone. He was in extreme close proximity to the other 11 disciples, even sleeping beside the campfire, but refused to tell anyone he walked alone. You understand that Judas, his name should have been in the foundation of the new Jerusalem alongside the other 12 apostles. He was called to do a great work. And perhaps that's why that Satan targeted Judas because he knew the potential that he had. You know, if, if Satan's not bothering you, it just means he's not worried about you. But because he keeps knocking you down, because he keeps sending his minions after you, that tells me that you've got potential in God, that, that you've got the potential to do great things in God, but there are some things that you've got to get over first, and you've got to stop walking alone. Amen. Look at, look at uh, to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? You ever played hide and seek with your kids? Now, busy moms know this. Busy stay-at-home moms. You know exactly what I'm going to say, don't you? A busy stay-at-home mom. If you're a stay-at-home mom and you've got three or four kids at your, at your ankles all day, play this game. Let's play hide-and-seek. Close your eyes, count to 30, let them go somewhere in the house to hide, and you get 10 minutes of peace and tranquility. <laughs> then come looking for them. Every once in a while, I just say, where are you? Hide-and-seek. So every mom see the kids are downstairs, so they don't know this. Well, not the youth, but... <laughs> 
the kids are downstairs. You don't do this with your teenagers because they don't like to play hide and seek. You're lucky if they even talk to you at all. <laughs> but every parent knows where the kid's going to be. It's kind of like you walk in and you see their feet sticking out from under the curtain. Or you hear their heavy breathing in the closet. Let me see, where is Luke at? I have no idea. <laughs> and you hear giggling under the bed. <laughs> where could he be? <laughs> this is what God is doing to Adam. Just as a parent knows exactly where their kid is at, that question, where are you, was not for God. It was for Adam. Where are you was not for God. Adam needed to confess to God where he was and what he had done before God could proceed to tell him the plan of redemption, which is contained in those curses in Genesis 3. Whenever God cursed the man, the woman, the serpent, and the ground, contained in that is Genesis 3 and 15, that out of Eve shall come a man that will bruise the head of the serpent. It shall bruise thy head, and you will bruise his heel. And that's the first promise of a redeemer. But before God could get to the redemption and the forgiveness part, Adam had to say what he had done. This is where I'm at. This is what I have done. So where are you was not for, for Adam, because you cannot truly repent over what you're hiding. You cannot truly repent over the things that you're hiding. And that's perhaps why Jesus could not help Judas. That's perhaps why Jesus never mentioned Judas by name and called him out. You don't think that Jesus knew what, what was in the heart of Judas? We know that he did because in John 6, he said, one of you is the devil. He's not going to tell you which one. And when the night of, of the Passover came and he ate the Passover with his disciples and he said, one of you will betray me, none of the other disciples knew, but Jesus knew all along. He knew from the moment he called Judas what was going to happen. That's called foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God. So none of it shocked Jesus, but Judas hid it. And so the Bible says this in James 5, confess your faults one to another and pray for what reason? That you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Confession requires humility and submission to one another. And that results in a healing that can happen both mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. God can't heal what you don't reveal. What about if you went to the doctor and, and, and you, you had this growing, gnawing pain in your chest? You go to the doctor and you say, you know, the doctor says, well, are you having any pain? He said, no, I'm feeling just perfect. I'm feeling just fine. Meanwhile, you've got this, this pain, this palpitation in your chest that you can't get rid of. You know what? It's not going to be too long before you're going to have a heart attack and you might die. It's going to come out one way or another. You might as well tell the doctor about it. Before long, everybody's going to know about it. But I would rather uh, reveal whatever it is that I'm struggling with in secret to a few chosen spiritual mentors than have it come out and everybody know about it. You know, Jesus said it like this, what is done in secret one day is going to be shouted from the mountaintop. 
there's going to be a judgment day that is coming very soon when we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and things that are done in secret, both good and bad, will be proclaimed for all to hear and all to see. And in that day, the Lord himself and all of the body of Christ and the whole world will know what was really in our hearts. God can't reveal what you don't heal. Look at Luke chapter 6. And it came to pass on the Sabbath, on another Sabbath, that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man who had a withered hand. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. And looking round about upon them all, he said this, stretch forth your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. This man who had a withered, shriveled up hand, most likely had his hand tucked quietly away inside of his clothing, for his ailment was probably an embarrassment to him. He would go to the priests, and when he would go to the priests, he would be reminded that no physical imperfection could be in the high priest. So this shriveled hand, you know, especially in those days, they often thought that people who were born blind or deaf or shriveled or with their hands shriveled out or lame, whatever it was, that somehow their parents had sinned or they had sinned. That was the judgment of God. Now, we know that that's nonsense, but that was the, that was the thinking in that day. So he kept his hand shriveled out because he was too afraid of it, of, 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 of it being revealed. He was embarrassed. So when Jesus said, stretch forth your hand, he said it in front of everybody. Stretch forth your hand. In other words, show me the thing that you are the most embarrassed about. I want you for a, a moment. This is what Jesus was saying to that man there with it hand. I want you for one single moment to be willing to come out of the closet and tell me where it hurts. And tell me in front of God and everybody. And that man stretched out his hand. And you know what? He had hardly stretched it out before his hand was not even withered anymore. You know, Jesus was not there to embarrass him. He was there to heal him. And as soon as he pulled his hand out of his coattail, they saw that his hand had already been restored. Because it was in that moment of single faith. And that's all that was required by God. Jesus could not have done this miracle without the man taping that leap of faith in Jesus' words. Stretch forth your hand was also a command to be healed. Show me the thing you're embarrassed at. Show me the thing that, you know, that you keep falling in. Show me that area. And when he did, he was restored. Mind, body, soul, and spirit. After he revealed it and after Jesus healed him, he became a testimony of God's kindness. And listen to this now. His identity was changed. No longer was he the man with the withered hand, but he became the man whom Jesus healed. That's what I want to be known as. I want to be known as the man that God touched, that God healed. And lastly, I'm almost done. Judas was never met for the potter's field. From Matthew chapter 27 and verse 5 says this, And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. The field of blood. So 
I don't want to make anybody nauseous or sick to their stomach, but what happened was he hung himself, and Acts chapter 1 says that he, all his bowels gushed out when he fell from the noose onto the rocks. And all of his bowels gushed out, and blood went everywhere, and that's why it was called the field of blood. He was called and chosen of God himself to be one of the elite 12 whose names are written in the foundation of the new Jerusalem. But instead, he walked alone. And because he walked alone, he ended up in their potter's field while farriers go, who did not heed the voice of the Spirit of God and walked alone in their pride. As we stand and musicians come, how did Judas fail? Because when you're alone, you're vulnerable to deceptive thinking. When, when, when you take whatever it is, if it's a decision that you're making all by yourself or it's a secret battle, whatever it is, whatever it is, when you try to solve those problems on your own, like I don't know about you, but sometimes I need somebody that's going to be honest with me to bounce things off of. Sometimes just hearing me say it realize out loud to somebody realize how ridiculous my thinking process was. I grew up with a man, a young man. He, he had two of the absolute most finest Christians that I've ever met in my life. I genuinely mean that for parents. They were pillars in the church. Amazing, amazing people. Well known throughout the district and throughout the whole fellowship. He wasn't even a preacher. That's how good of a man he was. He just, he was known by his character. And we all thought, you know, he, he grew up, he was a Bible quizzer, and he had the world by the tailor. So we thought, what we didn't know was that he had a secret battle. He had a severe anger problem. And we found this out years later. He would get so mad, he would put his fist through the sheetrock. They would have to, and he was only 13, 14 years old. We found out later when he was doing that. Well, he did end up in the potter's fields in the spiritual plan. It still is, unless God intervenes. He ended up in prison and going a bad direction. Now he's turned his kids off to be an apostolic, you know, taking them somewhere else that's not even close to being apostolic in, in no way, shape, or form. And this is a young man who grew up apostolic, but he was too afraid to be vulnerable. We've got to get rid of that spirit. Because here's the thing. How many has ever had a major spiritual battle in your life that you needed help with overcoming? Would you just lift your hand right now? Now I want you to keep your hand up. And I want everybody to look around. And I want you to go, go ahead and look around and see whose hands are up. At n nearly everybody in this building has their hands lifted, including me. Because here's the secret the enemy doesn't want to tell you. When you're battling something, you're just like the rest of us. At some point, we all got our foot stuck in the mud and we needed a man of God or an evangelist or a preacher or a singer or a spiritual mentor to come into our life and help us and pull us out of that. 
or counsel us out of that. Counsel us down from that potter's field. God doesn't want you to end up in the potter's field like Judas Iscariot. He wants you to go on and do greater things than you ever could have imagined. And this day, he's calling you out of the darkness, out of that dark closet and into his light today. He's calling you to healing into a new place in him. Would you lift your hands right now? And would you thank God that we are not walking alone when we are walking with the Lord and that we can be vulnerable to each other. We have that ability. We can choose to be vulnerable. We can tell other brothers and sisters in Christ our struggles. You're not going to get judged. Uh, you know, I can't speak for any other church, but I can tell you here at Refuge, you are not going to be judged. No matter what you've done, no matter, no matter who you tell it to, we're going to pray for you. We're going to help you. We're going we're gonna to pray that healing comes into your life. And I want us to do an altar call a little bit different. I want you to go to somebody, brother or brother or sister to sister, or maybe as a group, and I want you to pray together. I want you to come together as, as with somebody as an altar. It can be husband and wife. It can be two best friends. It can be ladies, ladies, men to men, or it can be youth gathering and praying for each other. But I just want us to all do that and pray with and for each other today. In Jesus' name, let's not walk alone. Would you do that right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, mighty God. You're a good God. Hallelujah.
Your spirit lives within me. 